Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through their legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation. A very sunny, extremely hot day in Los Angeles, California. A little early this year, but I do want to add a little cautionary note today for some sensitive subject matter. I like to to do that when I think there might be something that might trigger someone. But I have another amazing guest today. I I am so blessed with these amazing humans that keep coming into my life. I I'm I'm truly uh, amazed at the strength and courage that people are coming to me with. And she's another great example of tragedy, faith, renewal, which to me is trauma, trial, and transformation. She became the first female to graduate from BYU with a degree in manufacturing engineering. And she had a 20-year career in the automotive industry for Ford Motor Company out of Michigan. She is the author of an amazing book called Beautiful Ashes, A True Story of Murder, Betrayal, and One Woman's Quest for Peace. It became Amazon's number one best-selling book in multiple categories on release. She's an award-winning author who is spending all of her time doing what she can to help others to find hope in their journey of healing from adversity by sharing her extremely courageous story. She posts inspirational quotes with life lessons multiple times per week to over 2.7 million people. That's just incredible. Her story starts with uh, growing up and really witnessing severe domestic abuse against her mother, the hands of her father. She lived with the constant threats of killing everyone and burning this house down. Unfortunately, that threat one day came true, lost her mother in a house fire, later out finding it was the hands of her father. I really can't wait to talk today to my amazing guest. Welcome, Shelly Edwards-Jorgensen. Welcome, Shelly. Wow, I'm just so thrilled and blessed that you're here. Well, thank you so much for having me, Juliet. I'm I'm really excited to to talk about this subject because it's to me it's it's very important and it's overlooked by almost everybody. The actual impact of it. Yeah, well, we're gonna get into the that side of your story, which is really amazing. But I just want to tap into a little bit on the on the trauma side without going too far down that rabbit hole. I know that you uh, your book is going to explain that entire story, but your house obviously burned down in October of 1985. And knowing that it was possibly your father, um, still leading to try and find answers and going within yourself. But how old were you at the time? I was 15. So it was, it was my sophomore year of high school. Sophomore year of high school. So, and you watched this abuse and domestic abuse happening for, it sounded like most of your life. Is that correct? Yeah, my entire life. My my parents were married just shy of 25 years, um, actually a month shy of 25 years at the time of the fire. And 
the domestic violence started from the beginning. Well, so, so I want to go to the, to the day of the fire. So you, and again, I don't want to give away too much in your book because I really think people need to pick up this book. It's, it's an incredible, incredible story. Um, and, but the day that that happened, um, you had to go to the police station. Is that correct? Like, did you have anybody go with you or what happened from a legal perspective the day of the fire? Well, the the day of the fire, uh, actually an incident happened with my sister, which was kind of the uh, catalyst to the the domino effect that happened that day. My sister, my sister had gotten in trouble earlier in the day. And then later in that afternoon, my, my parents, um, basically got into an argument uh, when when we weren't home. I was at basketball practice and my sister was at basketball practice. And um, I talk about the whole story extensively in the book, obviously, but mm-hmm. um, my sister and I both were at school and and my neighbor shows up to, to tell us that the house is on fire. Um, I, I knew before I left for basketball practice that that there was a possibility of a volatile situation, but I tried to diffuse it as much as I could. You know, mm-hmm. being 15 years old, uh, you know the warning signs when you grow up in domestic violence. And, um, you know, obviously I wouldn't have left if I thought it was, if there, I thought there was a risk. But, um, you know, the thing that my mother had been telling me for years was, one of you, one of the these days, he's not. You're not going to be here, and he's going to kill me. Actually, came true, and so, um, so our neighbors showed up at uh, the practice and said there was a fire at our house, and we were on our way home um, immediately to to see what was going on. And um, I'm trying to find out, you know, where my mother is, and. You know, they're they're telling us that, you know, your dad's safe, the fire department's on scene, and there's this dumb song playing on the radio from the 80s was the roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. My sister's singing it mm. in the back seat. She oh. wasn't home before we left. And um, as she's singing the lyrics to that dumb song, I uh, I I ask, well, where's where's mom? And and uh my neighbor, who, Mrs. Idell, who's pick, picked us up, is looking at me in the rearview mirror, saying, "Oh, your mom's not home from work yet." At that moment, I I hit my sister in the leg. I said, "Lisa, uh, mom was home when I left." At, and in that moment, both of us knew mm-hmm. that my mother was dead, and who did it because we knew the history. But right. when you grow up in that environment, you automatically are trying to shove that down. Um, mm-hmm. you're, 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 you go into this, you want to believe that, um, that's not the case, that something, something extraordinarily right. different happened. Right. But so, so it took hours and hours later, uh, for the police to finally tell us, um, that my mom was dead. You know, the, because we lived in upscale, um, suburban, suburbia in Detroit, the news, um, you know, two, four, and seven, which were ABC, NBC, and CBS, the major mm-hmm. networks, all the news vans were there. Um, literally that night, I watched 
uh, video coverage of my house in flames on the Mm. 11 o'clock news. And they knew that night that the fire was suspicious. And and so, so... So let me, let me ask you, that's where I want to start. Like where, when they knew there was suspicion, right? And then... Did they come and talk to you right away? Did the law enforcement come and talk to you right away? Like, where, when did they enter the, the scene? Yeah, so so the next morning, we had to show up to the uh, Farmington Hills Police Department. And okay. so here's, here's the interesting thing. is So, you know, less than 12 hours before, I'm told my mother's dead. I've lost my home and, and, and every worldly possession. Mm. And... Um, I'm I'm 15 years old. My sister's 17. We're we're showing up at nine o'clock or eight o'clock, whatever time, first thing in the morning, to the police department to be questioned. And my dad has a criminal defense attorney. I'm not even putting two and two together that he's got a criminal defense attorney. Um, and and when I go to get questioned, because I was the last one home. His attorney is in the is in the interrogation room, and so oh my gosh, when when the police are interviewing me, you know, and and, and you got to kind of frame it with when you grow up in domestic violence, and especially the facade that I grew up behind, which was everything's bright and shiny and the picket white picket fence, like leave it to Beaver. Mm. You don't talk mm. about this. You do not tell anybody mm-hmm. that this is happening. So I've been trained from birth to not talk about the really what's going on in my home. So um, the police start asking me questions. And and the problem was, is I'm, I'm stressed beyond belief because I feel like I'm being interrogated mm. like I'm the criminal. And, imagine. and number two, the lawyer's glaring at me. And, um, and they're not asking me the right questions. But he's not representing you, right? He's only representing your father. No, he's not representing me. He's representing my dad. Your dad. So they bring you in with no representation. No representation. No representation. No, no CPS, no nothing. And nothing. And so they're asking me these questions. And you have no choice. No, and and I'm the last one home, so that's, that's why right. the that's why the lawyer was in with me because I'm the one that can screw up my dad's entire alibi, <laughs> and so because his alibi was that he that number one, um, he left the house um, to go get heating supplies for our cottage. Well. He was drunk, still drinking his Manhattan in his bathrobe when I left for basketball practice. So, mm. and his first story was that he never saw my mother. Well, he realized that that was, you know, that that, that wouldn't fly because I was a witness that she was home. <laughs> so, right. but, you know, the police are asking me these questions. They already knew the fire was suspicious. My mother is 50 years old at the time. You don't have a dead woman in an in an arson that's not murder (laughs) and so but they're not asking me about domestic violence they never once asked me about that they asked me you know just the details of the the timeline right well so but expecting you to talk about this at a 15 years old 
with no representation, nobody else there to help you, just you're on your own. I just, I'm number one, I'm so sorry for that. I mean, it's, I know it's in the 80s, but it's still, it's just uh, the concept of that. I'm not sure how much that's changed today. That's my big question to the world. But so now, you, so you, you got back to, you know, so you had to go through this process with your dad and then you went home and lived with him. Is that correct? Well, yeah. Not only did I go home and live with him, but uh, I mean, it was crazy. He wasn't even arrested. This was October. Um, we end up uh, moving in to renting the house that uh, I practically grew up in because it was my best friend's house um, until a couple years prior. Um, that I could look out the back window and see my house that was burned up. And, oh, and, that's like- and, <laughs> well, and then my dad started sending me over there to get canned goods out of the basement. Yeah, I read a little now, excerpt in your book of that section. That's pretty amazing. I mean, just. Why wow. would he have a key to a crime scene? So well, that's, that was some of my questions here because I, as I read a little bit of you know things about it, it's like what, where were did no one? I mean, number one, it's a crime scene. Number two, they have to be suspicious at some level, right? I mean, and they didn't offer any services or help for these for you as children under eighteen. Like, so you were just left you and your sister by yourself without any services whatsoever or or anyone to watch over you. Yeah, absolutely no services after wow. and see even so even after they started um, figuring out that there was domestic violence from other sources, they never once came back and, and talked to my sister. Or I never once. The wow. only other deposition we gave was for the insurance company um, mm. debating about the, the contents of the home. And it wasn't until I got subpoenaed to show up in court that I and and I didn't find out about that until less than a week before I had to show up in court that I was even yeah. going to be in court. And right, I want I want to get into that actually. I I, I want to get into that because I, I saw that you said you know your dad called you and said hey by the way so can you tell me that story that 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 just fascinated me that you're living with him. He's obviously had to have been arrested by that point, correct? Well, I'll go back up and back up another thing, too, is that so before he was even arrested right now, obviously, they're not going to notify minors that their father's going to be arrested. But here's another another fall on your face moment for the system is um, so after the fire, my sister and I are living with my dad and um, he's he's drunk now continuously. Um, No one's. In intervening. There's there's nobody. And so in February, we come home from school and there's a plate of spaghetti dumped in the sink and my dad's car is in the garage. And we're like, well, where the, where is he? Because he, at this point, the only time he left the house was to get alcohol or, you know, some, but the car was there. N- no notification that he's been arrested. We have no idea where he went. We, my sister and I decide to go to the high school basketball game and go to a party that night. We come wow. home. We come home. They're calling. He's calling us. There's there's messages on the answering machine, and we're getting a call from my aunt, my my dad's um, sister-in-law, saying that he's been arrested and that we have to go postpone for him the next morning. 
So the next morning, so that night, two teenagers are spending the night alone. I was going to say, you're still minors, we're, right? I mean. Yeah, we're still minors. We're both, we're both under 18. I'm 15. My sister's 17. We're, we're within eyeshot of the, uh, the murder scene. Um, and now we have to go post bail bond for the murderer who we're living with. Who's coming home. Who you're living with. And, okay. Wow, 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 wow. And, and nobody is helping us. And we, and, and right. we we're now we're, we're teenagers trying to logistically figure out how to get the money, which sets us up to wow. be robbed later of our own money. Right. But that's a whole oh. different story. So that wow. happened I mean, before the whole trial thing. So wow. so that so let's go into the next step of that. So so that happens, then you don't really realize that you're going to trial and you get called a week before trial that February. Is that correct? Is that what the story was? I mean, tell me that little story right there. Yeah. So uh, because I was living out my life in the newspaper, I just, and my sister graduated, I couldn't handle it anymore. And I moved. My senior year of high school was going to be my dad's trial. I knew that. And um, my best friend at the time's family moved back to California and they asked if I wanted to come. So, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. fending for myself so I moved to California f- thinking that, you know, I I don't have to, anything to do with this. I'm, I'm not going to be involved at all. No one's even talked to me. It's been two years and no one's talked to me. Oh. So two and a half years almost by the time the trial. So I get, I'm in, I'm living in California. My dad calls me up like, I don't know, it was like Tuesday. And he's like, Shelly, um, you have to appear in court on Monday. Um, I bought you a plane ticket. You're you're flying home on Friday from San Francisco mm-hmm. and, you know, blah, blah. So I'll pick you up from the airport. So my dad picks me up from the airport. I'm staying with my dad. And he 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 says, well, tomorrow you have to go meet with this this attorney. Here's the address. Doesn't tell me anything else. I'm like, OK, so I have no idea. I'm still trying to believe his story. I still want to believe his story. Mm -hmm. I show up at this lawyer's office and um, thinking she's just some associate of his attorney because, you know, no one's informed me of anything. So, Mm -hmm. so the, the, the lawyer starts asking me questions and I'm like, okay. So I start answering the questions. And then she starts showing me some pictures. So one of the pictures she showed me was this huge, probably three foot in diameter, rust colored stain on a tan carpet in the living room. And asked me, um, were you in the living room before you left? I said, yes, I just told you I was in the living room before I left. She's like, well, would you have seen this stain if it was there? I'm like, of course I would have seen this stain if it was there. I just walked through and I'm showing her where I literally walked right across where that stain was. Mm-hmm. And um, and plus, the um, we had a, a, the living room was quite large and the ceiling went um, to from one story to two story and there was this grand... Mm-hmm circular staircase that I had just come down and then walked. So when you're coming down the staircase, you're overlooking the entire living room. 
So, of course, I would have seen this. So, she starts saying to me, she says, well, she said, the, the night of the fire, um, the, the police took pictures, and this is one of the pictures that they took. And when they went back, I don't know if, it, I can't remember, she said a week or two weeks, she told me, but I can't remember exactly. When they went back later to, to get a sample of this carpet uh, for the crime lab, the carpet was missing. Well, my hmm. mind's going a million miles an hour. I'm like, well, I know exactly what that that scene is then. Right. And, um, and is this, who's this person? Who's the lawyer? Well, so then she starts talking about other things. And I'm like, what in the heck? And I finally, I look at her nameplate. It's the prosecutor. That's what blew me away. She didn't even prepare me. She didn't even prepare me. I'm, I, I, it's like, I'm trying to piece this together as she's talking to me. Like, you're not even going to tell me who you are. But maybe she assumed that somebody, you know, with common sense would have prepared a teenager. But, but so, so it, I, I had to come to this realization. Right. You walked in totally blindsided. Oh, you're totally blind. You're thinking it's your dad's attorney. You find out it's a prosecutor, right? Mm-hmm. And she's asking you what you know, but not anything about prepping you for the stand. Is that correct? Not really. I mean, she she's asking me to um, to confirm these stories, and I I I my 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 world is falling apart in her office. Going first of all, how the hell do you know these stories? And second of all, I've never spoken to anybody about these stories. And now you're going to expect me to to recant these stories in open court with my father sitting across the room from me, knowing that you are using me to prove first degree murder. And and from him. And oh, by the way, I'm I'm staying with him. He's he's mm. I'm 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 living in the same house or I'm staying in the same house at that point. It's my home. So Were you afraid to go home? Of course I was afraid to go home. I was a basket case on the stand. I I after that prosecutor's office, then that was Saturday. I had to appear first thing on Monday. I didn't sleep. I was so First of all, I'm reeling because now I'm like, I cannot even, there, there was no room for dem- denial left in my life. I, I, I couldn't. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was too, I saw too much. I, 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 this, this is the first time I'm seeing the evidence of, about, um, about the accelerant poured through the house. The, all, the, all, all the evidence, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, no one... No one told me any of this before anyway, because I I would glean stuff from overhearing conversations or what I right. read in the newspaper. But right. so so she's presenting all this evidence that there's like, well, there's no I can't even pretend to, to think that my dad's story is true, even though I always right. knew it wasn't. And so right. I'm so you're, reeling. You're, are you seventeen at this point then? You're you're yeah, still a minor, I, correct? I'm seventeen. And, and right. now I'm trying to grapple with, what do I do? I've already lost my mother. I've already lost my home. You know, m- my, m- you know, my father might be a monster, but I also love him. So, right. 
So I spent the next two days trying to figure out how, because I'm, I'm, I'm a very honest person. And so it's like, I, I knew I had, I I knew I was going to be telling the truth, but I was so torn with wanting to say I didn't remember. And, and I don't know if that was to protect myself because I was afraid of my father or if it was to protect mm-hmm. my dad because I didn't want to lose him, you know. And then the other side of me is like, no, you need to honor your your mother's. You need to be your mother's voice. And yeah. and so I'm grappling with this for two days, and um, I I didn't even want to look at my father after I left the prosecutor's office. Well, I was going to say, how how did you sleep? Like the night before, how, how, or did you at all? Like, how did you just even, did somebody drive you to the courthouse? Like, this is the part that I'm going back to, which I'm, I'm thinking maybe things hopefully have changed since the 80s, but I don't know. I, I, I don't, um, I'm sure well, there's services, but. Well, I don't know if they've changed or not, because what's, what's kind of ironic is uh, right after my book got released, I got an email from a, a, a lady who read the book who is a retired prosecutor. Um, she, mm-hmm. and she just happens to be in Michigan, uh, not in the Detroit area, but a different County. And she reached out to me and she's like, she's like, wow. She's like, I hope I never did that to any minor. I hope I didn't wow. do that. And she, and she's only been wow. retired probably five years and she's questioning whether that was possible or not. Wow. So, wow. so, um, I also read where um, I also read where after you testified, and I mean, just sitting on the stand looking at your father had to be just terrifying. I mean that that. But I also heard that after you testified, the judge threw out some of your testimony, and that just had to have been like excruciating because people don't really quite understand what it's like to get up there and tell your truth, and then all of a sudden somebody says it doesn't matter. Like, how did you deal with that? Well, that's the funny thing. So I, I was a basket case on the stand and, um, you know, the judge kept yelling at me to speak up. I'm sitting there crumbling this uh, Kleenex in my mm. hand. I was I was just petrified oh. to the point that at the beginning. So, there, I mean, in, in the prosecutors asked me these very benign questions and I knew sure. I knew what was coming, though. And so with every question, it was like my mind, it was like this, I don't want to call it an out-of-body experience, but she would ask a question and then I wouldn't hear anything that's being said. And I'm thinking like 5,000 things about, well, mm-hmm. if you, if I only said this, 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 and this, I mean, like this whole scene um, mm-hmm. uh, would, would, would arise in my head. And so, right. um, and I tried to describe that in the book, but- uh, anyway, he, the, the judge kept saying, oh, can you speak up? Can you, you know, give her a glass of water? And then finally he took a recess. He thought my, my trouble was talking in front of the jury. No, my trouble was talking in front of my father. And so yeah. he dismissed, he dismissed the jury. And then they asked me all the most important questions when the jury was out of the room. And oh. I... And, and so now they're asking me these questions that I know every single answer is a nail in my father's coffin. Like, number one question was, when's the first time 
you um, heard your father uh, threaten to kill you and burn the house down. So I go in and tell him, well, hey, I was six years old. It was the summer of 1976. We fled in the Mustang. We did this, 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 and this. And I'm, I'm telling this whole story, all these details about the story, okay? And I knew it was 1976 because I knew what car my mother drove. We're in the auto industry. We get cars regularly. And so anyway, I, I knew all this, okay? And it's the same thing with every all these stories that I recanted about my father's threats to prove premeditation and to prove the pattern. And, um, but I'm a basket case because number one, and I'm humiliated because now I'm telling the world Mm -hmm. a secret and I'm doing it in open court (laughs) and it's being recorded. And it's, it's, these are stories that I never told another living soul. I mean, my sister and I didn't even talk about them. You, you didn't right. even talk about them the day after. I, I mean, it, it was right. never spoken of. And so the whole experience is just a stress bomb. It's, it's, and so then the judge yeah. takes a, a break to bring the jury back after I don't know how many hours. And, um, and so I go downstairs and I, I see my dad and I'm petrified. Because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, he's going to kill me. He's going to yeah. kill me. I'm, I'm dead. <laughs> and I, I, I seriously thought I was dead. And then he did the, the, the most humane thing he's ever done. And he hugs me. And he says, mm. just, just say what you got to say. And I'm like, it totally caught me off guard because it was totally out of character. And... <laughs> And so then I finished the rest of my testimony, which after the jury came back in. So all the hard questions, all the most important part of my testimony, the jury wasn't even in the room. And Mm, and so um, so Mm. it wasn't until I started writing my book and I went back to the courthouse to, oh, by the way, I had to pay a dollar a page to try to read my own words to print them off. Transcripts. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's 4,000 pages, so I'm not going to buy them all. But um, anyway, so I find out in this process of looking through microfiche that the judge threw out my testimony for all that thing that I I risked my life to do. And that's the reason why my dad was so okay, because he already knew it. His lawyer had already told him that he got it thrown out. I, I felt feel? so violated. I felt like you threw out my testimony because I couldn't remember that it was July 27th, 1976, that I couldn't remember, you know, I couldn't remember the specific date. I was six years old and now I'm 17. So you're expecting wow. me to, rem- to, I mean, unless right. it happens on a holiday, how do you remember a specific date? Right. Well, that's part of it. That's part of the, pro- that's part of the process of, you know, they want to make you look like a liar, but they're expecting you to remember everything. I mean, I've been in my own deposition and you're sitting there just like, this is, you asked me what I remember. I'm telling you what I remember. This is what I remember. And they want to do nothing but discredit that. And, um, but that feeling has got to be very lonely. And so, so you finish testifying and then you are now having to go home with him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I no no I- help. No, by, no help by prosecutors, no help by law enforcement, no help by any social services, nothing. 
No, I I walked off the stand and no one talked to me again. Ever. Mm. I, 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 I went back to California and then, um, the, my dad's trial finished and I heard through the grapevine that he was convicted and that his sentencing was going to be on such and such date. So I flew home for his sentencing. I sat in the gallery like everyone else. And I waved goodbye to my father when I heard him, you know, pleading his case to the judge. And that's it. I watched him watch walk off in chains. Still, now I'm, I'm an orphan. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a minor. Mm-hmm. Still, nobody talked to me. No help. Wow. None. Wow, I'm so so sorry for that. That that just uh, that just hurts my heart for sure. But you know, the amazing part of this podcast is the transformation, and I mean that is just such a powerful and intense story. But I I want to talk about your healing process because obviously, um, man, oh man, you've got some strength inside you that uh, needs to be bottled and and, and given out <laughs> all over the place. Yeah, salt to they were just given out. I mean, it's it's incredible the strength. So, so when when did you start your healing process? Well, and and that's why this part is so important to me is to try to help others. It it took me twenty years to find the right trauma therapy. I mean, obviously, um, you know, things have are changing and have changed, and. Uh, there's more resources for PTSD. There's there's more understanding of complex PTSD, which is what I had. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I I was um, perfect at, at building a facade. No one knew the pain that I was in. You know, I went about mm-hmm. and and went on. I mean, I went on to college. I got my bachelor's degree. I I started my dream job. I I um when my dad died in prison and he wrote us out of his will and I mean that's a whole nother part of the story. But you know we were destitute. We we everything was stolen from us after everything was stolen from us. And um um. So where did you find the strength? Like where where do you think the seed of that strength to continue on not go down drugs alcohol. I mean, I know you had some other issues that came along with medical stuff, but but where did that strength start right there to be like, I'm going to move forward with my life? I mean, I think that's what some people just want to know. Where does that, where do you get that? Well, I, well, I, as soon as my mom died, I did start drinking and, and I recognized, I, I started drinking and partying every weekend for like nine months. I was only six, only 15. And so by the time I was 16, I came to the conclusion of, well, Shelly, number one, this isn't making you happier. Yeah, right at the very beginning, maybe when when the buzz is starting, you're you're feeling okay. But then I was I was feeling more sad, and then I'm like, Mm -hmm. and then I started putting two and two together, going, alcohol is the root of what's destroyed your family, and Mm -hmm. so right then and there, I I decided. I am not going to do this. I haven't had a wow. drink of alcohol since I was 16 years old. Wow, and so, that's powerful. So, for, so in inside of me, I always, I, I've, I've always been driven. I, 
I was an athlete. I was a, I was a good student. I, I was all these things. And so um, I had goals and, and I didn't want, and because I, you know, put the facade up my whole life, I, I continued with that. So on the outside, everyone could see me and see, oh, everything's mm-hmm. fine. Well, in the inside, I was, I was depressed. I was suicidal. Mm-hmm. I, you know, mm-hmm. but if you would have looked at my accomplishments and you would have looked at my, I had my own home. I, I had a good life. I had mm-hmm. a great job. I was making good money, but mm-hmm. I was miserable. And I did have mm-hmm. a faith. I, you know, I always had a faith in God, but, but what, what, what happened for me in my mid thirties was I find the, found the right trauma therapy. And I also right. decided that I was going to, actually trust um in god <laughs> and his well, plan i was going to ask you <laughs> i was going to ask you how, how did myself faith and prayer help transform your life and i mean just something you've always had in you yeah i i i grew up um i grew up with with faith in um in god in my life but i didn't i i believed that that he existed and mm-hmm. i have um, I read this book is called Believing Christ, and he makes this statement um, in the book that you know a, a lot of people believe that Christ exists, but they don't believe him that he is capable of of healing. You know, not just allowing us to be forgiven for our sin, but the atonement is for our healing. And so I decided, okay. I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe in him and I am going to trust in God's plan for me. And then I started, I started having this mind shift about, um, what's the purpose of the purpose of life and, and the purpose of life mm-hmm. is, is to, to learn and to grow. It's to develop mm-hmm. Christ-like characteristics of empathy, humility, compassion, endurance, long suffering, charity, all of these things. Well, okay, if if you're a loving um, parent, which I believe God is our father. So if you're a loving parent, how do you teach your child these attributes? You, you right. they have to experience hard things. And so right. I started seeing things from a different perspective. At the same time, I'm digging up all this trauma and processing it as an adult in a healthy way mm-hmm. with techniques that actually worked. I, I did EMDR. I was too numb for EMDR, but I, I did neuroemotional technique, which was mm-hmm. a lifesaver for me. They're different out of the box techniques. Now EMDR has become more mainstream, but I'm talking right. like two, 2005, no one hardly heard of either one of those techniques or cranial right. or neurofeedback or any of these things. And so, I had the luxury of having a therapist who was who was trained in all of these different modalities. That's great. That's 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 what we're looking for. That's what we're looking for people that can help in this situation. Well, because um, we're going to start wrapping up here a little bit, but as I ask most of my my guests, is healing a choice? It is a choice, and happiness is a choice. And um, you know. If you're not ready to hear those things, it pisses you off when you hear those things because I wasn't ready to hear those things and I didn't be- because I didn't believe them. 
And Mm -hmm. uh, I'm here to tell you it is a choice. It's about a mindset. It's the most important thing I think I learned is um, why is the natural question? Why is this happening to me? That's a natural question. But the answer 100% of the time is because I need to learn something. So purpose. why keeps you in this vortex of depression, anxiety, stress, um, misery? So mm-hmm. address the question of why by acknowledging that you need to learn something. And then mm-hmm. start asking the question, what and how? What am I supposed to be learning? And how do I use that to help myself and others? You find oh. more strength in your own healing journey by helping others. It's about Amen. doing than yes. receiving. Yes. So oh, couldn't couldn't say it any better. That is so ideal. It's like the minute I get into my crap, I say I need to get out and go help somebody because it's it's it couldn't be any couldn't have put it any better, Shelly. That's just so amazing. So where can everybody find your book? Well, you can find it on Amazon or anywhere online uh, where where books are sold. I mean, Barnes and Noble online or Walmart online. But or you can go to my website. I, beautiful. I was gonna I was gonna ask you what about your website or how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, you can go to my website, uh, beautifulashesmemoir.com. I also share. M- you know, life lessons around inspirational quotes multiple times a week on social media. So if you want to follow me, if you go to my website, you can go to all my social media links are on there. I have a couple blog posts on there about some of my life lessons, other podcasts I've done. And um, I'm, I'm just trying to help people. That's that's my goal. <laughs> wow. Well, you are a pillar of strength, a bright light in a very tough situation with a very traumatic situation. I mean, I've had my own trauma and I just, I know that it's not, it's not the easiest path, but you said it so beautifully. That's, you know, there's purpose in that pain. And um, I just want to thank you so much for being here, for your resilience, your courage, your strength. Um, What an amazing guest today. So uh, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Juliet. Yeah. So, well, everyone, that said, I just want everybody to take a moment, just have appreciation for somebody else around you today and just go out and spread some love. Thanks very much. And uh, talk again soon. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at julietcock.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at JulietHuck.com. There you can find her books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts. The content, opinions, and information shared by the hosts and guests on this podcast are not to be considered professional legal advice or therapeutic counseling. If you need assistance, consult with a licensed attorney or therapist if you are appearing as a witness, experiencing emotional trauma, or are involved in any sensitive legal matters. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you.